This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A federal study found that Canadian veterans are at a significantly higher risk of suicide than the general public. Male veterans, 36% higher rate. Female, 81% higher rate. To talk about all of this, Vince Savoy is with us, founder and executive director of uh, TEMA, uh, Contour Memorial Trust, and former paramedic and emergency medical dispatcher. Vince is with us now. Vince, uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to us today. Greatly appreciate this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you tell, tell us what the TEMA Contour Memorial Trust is. Well, the, uh, the charity is named after a young lady by the name of TEMA Contour, uh, who was a homicide victim I attended to when I worked as a paramedic in Toronto. And as part of my healing process, uh, with the blessing of the Contra family, we set up uh, the Tema Contra Memorial Trust to basically raise awareness and bring attention to the various types of mental uh, health injuries that our members of the military and first responders face on a day-to-day basis. What did that do for you, Vince? How did it help you setting that well, up? Yeah, one of the struggles when, when you're diagnosed with PTSD, uh, and I was forced to leave my job because of it, um, you really go through an identity crisis and uh, also dealt with a tremendous amount of guilt for not being able to save Tema's life. So in essence, you, you kind of lose uh, or you just don't have a, a sense of purpose anymore. Um, so what setting up the charity allowed me to do, it gave me that sense of purpose and something to work on uh, in order to help others. So it, that's the way it helped me tremendously. I'm guessing that in your career, Vince, you saw lots of terrible scenarios. Why did this one trigger you, do you think? Well, the, the one thing that was very unique about uh, the Tema Contra homicide was that as I was, uh, as I was assessing Tema for the first time, I thought it was my fiancé that had been raped and murdered. And their physical resemblance was so uncanny that my partner, of the day actually commented and he thought it was my fiance as well. Mm. Um, but you, you come, you know, you realize very soon that, you know, this is not her apartment. This is not where right. she normally resides. And so you go on with the call, but uh, just making, you know, just that split second connection wow. with Tema. Um, yeah, caused years of, of PTSD. So. It's just, it amazes me to no end how these and you people can do this on a daily basis and seemingly not affect you. Um, you, you know, especially when we're talking, well, even whether it's EMS or soldiers, um, isn't it obvious, and, and we'll talk about a soldier at this point, anybody that sees combat or experiences what that is like, wouldn't they all need some sort of counseling at the end? I, I would, I would say yes, um, especially especially the soldiers, um, you know, who are front line and, and in the fight. Um, they do need access to mental health care and counseling, and the, the Canadian military does make that available to them. Um, but the unfortunate reality is that there is such a stigma around mental health. Um, prevalent in, in all of Canadian society, that it's really difficult for, um, especially Type A personalities, you know, like, like soldiers, uh, the comfortable yeah. and ask for that help. Uh, it, it seems interesting, though, uh, what you're talking about stigma, in the sense that uh, there doesn't seem to be any more suicides within the in the military, and maybe this is just lack of data. There doesn't seem to be any more than there normally is. Yet we're certainly talking about it. 
uh, a lot more. So what is that doing to change the stigma? Well, I, you know, I read, I read the uh, I read the reports about this new study, and what, what was really revealing. Um, you know, we've been tracking suicide rate within the military for several years now, and you know, when you look at what the military is actually reporting, you're absolutely right. The rate of suicide per 100,000 uh, individuals is no higher than the average uh, rate in Canada. But um, the study also showed that what the military was not doing was tracking the suicides of those individuals who had actually left the military. Ah, there you go. Yeah, so that's that's the difference. And the unfortunate reality is that once you leave the military, there really hasn't been any follow-up on those individuals. And that's where we are finding anecdotally uh, the troubles actually occurring because you know, once you're released, your benefits pretty well are, are gone and and again, it's really difficult for our veterans to step forward and ask for those, um, ask for support. So uh, you, your feeling is, is that if we got that data from those uh, post-military career, that this this uh, picture would be a lot different? I, I'm sure it will be. Um, and, and anecdotally, I can speak to you. you know, when we look at the prevalence of PTSD within the military, um, when you read the D&D reports, they, they claim that the prevalence is no higher than 8 to 9%. Um, but anecdotally, we know that, especially within uh, the army, you know, the, the soldiers, uh, that that prevalence has to be higher, um, just based on what we see here anecdotally with, with veterans. Um, these numbers uh, saying thirty six percent risk higher uh, higher risk of death by suicide than the general population. That's males, females, eighty one percent. Um, are we surprised that the rate of suicide is higher? Um, I I would not be surprised. Uh, I'm sure it's a shock to a lot of uh, a lot of Canadians who may read the report. But um, you have to remember um, one of the one of the findings of the study was that um, some of those individuals who died by suicide actually lost somebody to suicide shortly prior to them dying. Um, so, uh, again, if, if you're caught in the system that, that isn't often support and you have a sense of helplessness and hopelessness and, and actual despair, um, it's really difficult to reach out and get the help that you need. Uh, how do you explain the difference in uh, the stats with genders? Well, I, I, I believe, and I think you may, may, may have misquoted the stats, I, I believe that the actual uh, rate of suicide within the male population is about 81% higher than the female population. That's what I was going to say. It would be reverse, would it not? It, w- it is yeah, reversed. Right. And, and, and is, that that just sheer, is that just sheer numbers? Well, it couldn't be because it would be ratios. How do you explain this then? Well, it's hard to explain. But uh, again, we've been tracking the suicide uh, rate within the first responder community almost for four years now. And our, our research clearly shows that the majority of uh, individuals who, do, who die by suicide are men. Um, and, and we don't know why. I guess the obvious answer is maybe men are less likely to get help. Maybe men are less likely to look inward and, and realize that there is a problem and, and talk be. about it. You know, I mean, I'm stereotyping now, but maybe that has yep. something to do with it. Well, I'm sure stigma has a lot to do with it. Um, and, and again, we as men do not like to talk about our emotions or feelings and, and, and you know, uh, when, when you know when the ladies get together, it's not uncommon for them to talk about their lives and how they're doing and, and, and 
you know, yeah. how they feel. But that's pretty well unheard of when a couple of guys get together. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It's you know, over a couple of beers, and we're talking sports all the time. Yeah, so, no, good point. You know, it's, uh, it is difficult. And, and, and again, it's, I, I truly do believe it's the stigma. What, what is really interesting to me, um, and, and it's something that we're, we're trying to basically uh, do some research on, is with all the help and support that is available up there, uh, and people think that there really isn't, but there is support, you know, from the family physician to um, social workers, psychologists, uh, emergency rooms. Now, the system's not perfect, but support is there. Um, with all this support available, why is it that we still are losing people with suicide? Does age play a role here? Because I noticed some differences depending if you're over or under 25. Does experience help, or is it just a matter of time? The more calls you go on, the more battles you're in, sooner or later something's going to trigger it. Yeah, I was really surprised by that because the study does indicate that those individuals that were younger than 25 had a whopping, I think, 242% higher rate than than their colleagues. Yeah. I, I, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, again, my illusion would be the lack of life experience yeah. um, and or not having the social supports to back you up when you require it. Um, but again, we would just be guessing as, as to you know, what those reasons are. Um, I, I believe we've talked about this before, Vince, but do we do enough... Uh, obviously, in both these occupations, whether it's EMS or uh, the military, the personnel are, are obviously well-trained to do what they do. But do we spend enough time training them for what they're going to see and experience, smell, and all that sort of stuff? No, we don't. And, and that's, one of, that's one of the things we've been advocate, advocating for for years is actually a change in curriculum as to how we train our first responders and members of the military. Um, and to give you an example, uh, there is no requirement for any first responder in Canada to be trained in, in suicide intervention, um, which is appalling to me because you know, I remember as a paramedic, uh, I often attended to call, you know, cries for help of those individuals who were thinking about dying by suicide. Yeah. Um, so we basically learn by the seat of our pants, right? But we, we can, and there is, and there are, sorry, um, educational courses that can teach the first responder and, and the soldier how to identify those individuals who may be thinking about suicide and more importantly how to engage in the conversation so that we can start talking about suicide and get them the help that they need any way to i don't know have some sort of psychological test that we can give people before they enter into these occupations and say you know what it may be good for you it may not be good for you but, or or can, we, can, we even, can we even say that? Because, you know, you talk about your scenario, it wouldn't matter. I mean, that is, that is such a unique situation. C- could, you ever, could you ever characterize any of this? Well, it, that's a double-edged sword because conversely, you know, you, you do know that people who have, been exper- who have been exposed to trauma in the past tend to be some of the most resilient people um, on, our, on the front line of, of the first responder community. So, you know, if we, if we had a psychological questionnaire to kind of weed out those individuals who've experienced trauma, because, you know, one would think that they would be more susceptible to trauma. Right. Um, you know, but, that, some, but then is that fair, right? Well, exactly, you know. Yeah. And, and conversely, what are we trying to gauge? And yeah. one of the things that makes our, our you know, members of the military and our first responder community is that they truly are 
caring and empathetic people. Yeah. You know, they get into this line of work because they do want to help people. So if we try to weed out those individuals who uh, are empathetic and caring and compassionate, yeah. then we're looking at individuals who, in essence, are sociopaths. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really it's a really difficult question to look at. So what is your feeling Vince on the vet, uh, on the veterans suicide uh, morality study? Um far enough you talked about uh keeping data on on soldiers that have left the military. Uh a- any any thoughts of this expanding in any way? Well, I, I hope it does. Uh, we would like to see Public Safety Canada actually start conducting or tracking uh similarity the suicide rate within the first responder community. Um, for example, uh, this year alone, the rate of suicide within the paramedic community is at 44 per 100,000 people. So that's four times the national average. Um, and yet, you know, in Canada, we don't have a national tracking system to look at suicide within these occupations. And I think that's very important that we do because it, it may allow us to develop um, new ways of intervention and and how can we uh, assist you know our frontline staff uh with the ems would this be the same across the country are there some cities some areas that are doing this better than others uh sorry doing what better than others uh, keep you know keeping track of of their people and and no. their well-being <laughs> i mean is is any city any ems service doing this right or is this is something national needed for this well, we do need a, a national framework, which is why it's so important. Most recently, uh, MP Todd Doherty uh, introduced a private member's bill, C-211, uh, in the House of Commons, which was unanimous, unanimously passed. Um, unfortunately, the bill's uh, sitting on somebody's desk in, in the Senate right now, and it, it hasn't even been reviewed or, or, or actually given a royal assent. So... We need a national strategy that, that can allow us to do the things that we need to do. But conversely, there are a number of first responder organizations who are very good at offering peer support to their frontline staff. And we are finding with, with peer support, again, if, it's, if that's actually done appropriately, it can be very effective. Uh, I know one service, for example, in the GTA, um, in his first year of offering the peer support program, they identified six of their medics who were actually dealing with suicide ideation and actually got them the help they needed. So uh, it, it, it can work and it does work. We just have to you know, have the fortitude you know, within city councils to allow this sort of thing to occur. Vince, you talked about stigma. What about young people that are coming into these occupations now, whether it's EMS uh, whether it's the military, they've got to be more aware of it now just simply because we've been talking about it more. Are, are, they, are they more conscious or, or are they more apt to, um, you know, t- to seek this sort of stuff? Or once they get into the rank and file, uh, you know, does this sort of old culture prevail? Well, I, I, again, it comes down to stigma. And I, I cannot tell you how many times I've spoken to, for example, paramedic students at a community college and and we talk about mental health injuries, and you can almost divide the class into you know those individuals who who uh, listen to every every word you, you have to say and kind of uh, want to learn more and really want to prepare themselves. But uh, on the flip side, we still have those young men, yeah, right, 
who are full of testosterone. Yeah, just want to be heroes. Just want to be heroes. Yeah. And, they don't and good for them, them. And good for them. Oh, exactly. Yeah. You yeah. still need them, right? Yeah. Yep. But, uh, but things are changing. Even, well, even though it's slow, we, we are seeing some change in, in the community college programs where they are talking more about mental health issues. I mean, that would be the best place to start. I mean, all of, you know, uh, most of these uh, vocations have some sort of community college uh, training uh, or, or that, that, that participants will do just to get a head up, uh, you know, a leg up rather on, on getting a job and such. I mean, is that not the per- per- perfect place to do this? I mean, what, you know, thinking of the things that they would teach you in an EMS type course or a security yeah. or law enforcement course. I mean, this should be part of it, should it not? In an elective, in some, at least as an elective in some sort. Well, it should be mandatory. Never mind. Yeah, no, that's true it, too. Yeah, it should be mandatory, and, and that's part of the challenge is actually getting community colleges across the country to uh, reevaluate their curriculum and actually look at how we're training our first responders. All right, Vince uh, Savoy has been with us, founder and executive director of Tema Contour Memorial Trust, former paramedic and emergency medical dispatcher, who, of course, now uh, dedicates his time uh, to getting other people the help that they need. Vince, uh, Vince, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Oh, thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Boy, you know, it, 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 it's never dull when it's time to uh, review this week in Trump. Protests and clashes have been happening since the president of the United States declared that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. In uh, his opinion, anyway, it's a very divisive statement, a very, very complex issue. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to The Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure as always, Scott. Surprised with the timing of the whole Trump-Israel-Jerusalem uh, thing? Are you surprised that this is happening now? No, because he's actually been saying it for a while, so no, I'm not. And this is an issue that has been under pretty heavy scrutiny and discussion for several decades. It's mostly been Republicans and Republican presidents who have proposed the move. There have been some Democrats who have leaned that way. I mean, you can basically look from Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and others who at least talked about it or considered it briefly. But in the end, what has typically happened is all of them have had their own experts on Israel and the Middle East come in and advise against it or warn against it based on the fact that there could be potential violence in the area. And that's what the biggest concern has always been, especially East Jerusalem, which, you know, which is obviously a, an area which has been pretty volatile in history in, that, in, uh, in Israel, in that country. So most U.S. presidents and political parties have just sort of stayed away from the issue. And internationally, the same sort of feeling or sentiment exists. So they've just decided not to go that route. Donald Trump, though, as, as you may remember, a few months ago suggested that that was going to be one of his cornerstones in his first term was to shift the U.S. embassy over to Jerusalem, which he perceives to be the capital of Israel. And um, the way Trump obviously operates is he's trying to do something different or opposite to what already existed, with the argument being that, well, look, the capital right now isn't Jerusalem, and look at all the violence and problems that have occurred in Israel and the Middle East over the past few decades. Let's do something different. Can you use that logic here, or is it too complex an issue? I think it's too complex an issue. I could, look, it, it, as a very basic theory, I understand it. 
And certainly, um, I think that there is benefit to doing this. The problem is, I don't think the conditions work in favor of it right now. And I don't know if the conditions would ever work in favor of it. And based on the fact that we've already seen a little bit of violence to begin with, the Palestinians have already announced that one person is dead based on all of this. That actually means that, unfortunately... Yes, you can say that, well, this is not unusual for the area. It would have happened whether Trump had made the announcement or not, and that could be true. But the potential for violence in the area is high. It will escalate to levels which are much higher than they are now. Or, and here's the one thing that we should mention, Scott, irrespective of what Donald Trump does or does not know about history of any country or any region, if it does work out, it will actually show that even just the simplest, simplest, most simplistic turn can actually sometimes work to your benefit. I just think this is way too complex an issue and way too complex an area to make this decision. But they made the move forward, so I guess, unfortunately, we'll just see what happens. Uh, here's what Rex Tillerson had to say about this. He was, I think, very clear that the final status of Jerusalem is a matter that would be left, including the borders, would be left to the parties to negotiate and decide. Uh, it, it, he, he goes on to say in other clips that uh, this ain't going to happen anytime soon. It's going to take forever, as if, he's, uh, as if he's not necessarily in agreement with it and certainly trying to defuse the scenario. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Tillerson is actually taking it from the right, uh, right side in, in the sense that even if he does agree with it overall, and based on the clip that you showed and what I've also read recently about what he said, there is some hesitation on his part. But again, most Republicans and most conservatives have hesitation about doing this, so Tillerson is just part of the crowd. But what he's trying to do, which other members of Trump's cabinet have tried to do, is take a measured response against their boss, who sometimes they feel just always basically just throws himself into every melee and doesn't really know how to react one way or the other when things sort of go wrong or you have to make another twist or turn. Trump likes disarray. That is his big thing. He, again, he has his positive points and his negative points, but that's what he loves. He loves to be basically put into sort of a cyclone where he has to figure out a way to fend for himself, figure out a way to solve a problem, and come up with something in his gut that makes sense. Now, obviously, Donald Trump is also being influenced by others, including his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who obviously has a lot of interest in the area, especially when it comes to the state of Israel. So right now, I would say that Tillerson, or Tillerson's position is exactly what you would expect a mainstream Republican, conservative, or even just simply a Democrat or liberal to take right now in the United States. That you get the logic behind it, but it could take an enormous amount of time to get there. And that Donald Trump is basically starting, or he's initiating the whole flow to switch everything to Jerusalem and making it the capital of Israel. But when Donald Trump actually comes out and says that, well, the Middle East process is now finished because of this, it's far from it. It's only starting. Uh, can you use or can he use the art of the deal I ideology in issues like this? Like you said, he's a divisive guy. He purposely pits one side against the other. Mm -hmm. But then he has a bad habit of turning around and walking away. Um, can you do it with this situation? I mean, he's lit a powder keg here. What does he have to do now? How does he wh what's his next move? What's his follow up to this? You just can't you just can't get the, you know, put the world in disarray and then turn your back and go, what's the next issue? 
<laughs> well, unfortunately, some people can. <laughs> I guess you can, yeah. Who am I to say, right? <laughs> exactly. I, you see, unfortunately, what you and I perceive as the way to operate certain things does not exist in Donald Trump's world. And maybe it's a good thing. Maybe we're so locked in our little prisms that we don't understand how it could be that, oh, we leave the prism and everything gets better. But in terms of what you were saying before about Donald Trump and the art of the deal, this is how he operates. He operates his life like that. He operates his presidency like that. And I think when it comes down to any sort of domestic or foreign policy decision, I think he always has the art of the deal in the back of his mind. The problem is that you cannot take the way you operate operate things in a business, and a large business like he had, and then necessarily transplant those ideas and theories into a completely different realm, which is the day-to-day operations of politics. I think even Trump has learned in his first year, and he said it here and there in various interviews or on the podium, that politics is much harder than he ever thought it was going to be, that there's a lot of give and take that's involved, that there are a lot of um, angles and preconditions that he probably never took into account. So when it comes to something like this, even if his inner cabinet, for argument's sake, we'll use a hypothetical, is in favor of moving the capital of Israel to Jerusalem and think there's a lot of benefit to it, I think that Trump basically just is going to sort of run it on it, you know, run it on its own. He's already made the decision, and now he tells his minions to go out there and defend it as much as you possibly can. I just don't think, unfortunately, the art of the deal where you make the deal, you shake your hands, and you move forward, you know, with a bold grin on your face that this is the way we're going to do it and pound your hand on the table. It's not quite that simple in politics. It's not quite that simple in foreign policy. And I think Donald Trump will learn that, yes, for the praise and good feelings that he's probably feeling right now, either privately or publicly, about moving the capital, he's going to realize that very, very quickly the powder keg known as the Middle East is going to explode. It has to. Hmm. And the question is, how does he handle it from there? So moving forward, I think, is going to be the harder part. Uh, as we've said, this is an extremely complex issue, a lot of history here, a lot yes. of different views affecting a lot of different people. Yes. Does he have the capacity for this discussion? Well, remember, it's not all about him, Scott. He does have advisors, yeah. and he does have foreign policy advisors around him. Again, your listeners... But is any, may- any one of those advisors saying, and again, I, I'm just reading what, what the rest of the world is saying, because yeah. at this point it seems like it's him... And, and perhaps Israel, but other than that, the, the rest of the world is saying, no, 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 don't do this, don't do this. So are his aides saying, uh, yeah, go ahead and do it? Are they saying, well, if you want to do it, oh, my goodness, here's how, what we're going to have to do to try to make it all work? Right. Well, look, there are some aides, obviously, like his son-in-law, who are obviously mm-hmm. all in favor of it, so naturally they're going to push him along. The ambas- the U.S. ambassador to Israel is also probably heavily in favor of it, basing on, based on his points of view. So there's another voice that's actually pushing him. I would imagine that Donald Trump has probably been advised by other Middle East experts, uh, possibly rabbis, various other people, who have given, you know, a litany of ideas about how to either do it or not do it, or do it properly, or, or basically, if you're not going to do it, here's what you could do as an alternative point of view. And yes, although Donald Trump runs this operation, there is no doubt that he's in control of the White House, um, I would imagine that in behind closed doors, 
there were probably some advisors who said to him, this is a fantastic idea, this is what the Republican Party has wanted for a long time, this is what the base likes, many evangelicals and religious Jews who he obviously wants to court, especially if he wants to run again for re-election in 2020, they're all in favor of it, so that's your base. So if your support base is okay with it, that's generally what Donald Trump looks toward as a possible point of achieving success. What do the people who like me, or what do the people who actually voted for me and got me here in the first place, what do they want? And as long as it meshes with his own worldview, he'll move forward with it. But how did his other advisors handle it? It's a great question. You know, none of us are flies on the wall in the White House, so we don't know exactly. And based on what little, you know, contact base I have through there, which is, you know, very much mostly word of mouth, although I have little things here and there, what I kind of gather from them is that the general sentiment was that if Trump was going to make the move, it was seen as a bold initiative that he had talked about for a while, so we press forward. But I think a lot of people around him recognize that there are a lot of concerns, including from Republicans and, as I said, conservatives, libertarians, and others, who realize that the Middle East is just... It's not this little easy-peasy type of puzzle, which is four pieces. You put it together and it's done. It's a very complex jigsaw puzzle. And for that reason, this is an interesting twist to a narrative that has existed for decades and has been very volatile with enormous amounts of violence and loss of life in the Middle East through various wars. I think there's obviously a major concern that if it goes too far and there's an escalated amount of violence, what in God's name do we do then? Because... Trump is not going to back off from this. He rarely ever does. He's going to keep pressing forward. What does that exactly mean? And that's, you know, that's still a wild card. So how he, is he, how will he, how does he react to this violence? I mean, you know, are we about to hear a barrage of tweets over the weekend? I mean, is, is this an issue you can handle like that? No, he's always been a sort of person who's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth type, type, type of guy. Right. And I think that <clears throat> what will happen is maybe... You know, one incident will either provoke him to do one tweet, maybe here and there, and I don't think there'll be a huge rush towards it. If you start to see an escalation where it's several people or groups or they're bombing restaurants or, or tourist spots or, or they go after God knows what, they start trying to enter into the Wailing Wall, God knows what they try to do, and I'm not suggesting I have any idea what they would attack. We all don't know, but if it gets worse... Um, I could certainly see him using Twitter, which is his raison d'etre in life. It's his, it's his method of getting to the people and getting to his support base. I could see him then sort of ferociously going after it. Let's say it happens on a weekend or, or someday during a week and just go pile on and on and on with between five to ten tweets expressing his point of view and his frustration and anger and that the fact that the United States stands behind Israel, you know, they're our close ally, we're going to do whatever is necessary to ensure that, you know, that the capital city becomes Jerusalem, this is what I want, this is what I believe in, etc. Because that's, generally speaking, how Donald Trump has run his presidency. It would be very hard for me to believe that an escalation of violence would lead to some sort of retrenchment from the, the White House in terms of how we're going to handle this issue. When they move forward on controversial issues, they just keep plowing away. Look, Donald Trump still talks about the election. We're still hearing stories, as you probably heard about the Supreme Court, with the travel ban. There are just issues that they will not give up on, which is to their credit that they want to obviously keep moving forward. You have to admire them for pressing forward, no matter what you think of the issue. But on an issue like this, 
which involves the Middle East, which is a very difficult place and difficult region, not just for the United States, but for the, all the countries around the world, including Canada, it's something that they're obviously going to have to focus on. And if there is an escalation of violence, defend it as much as possible. But I'm sure Trump will definitely do it. Could this define his presidency? Is this the biggest thing? Is this the biggest incident so far? And could, as you said, depending on history, how history plays out, could this define his presidency? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously the tax cuts that he's, he's trying to get through, and hopefully will by year's end or just after Christmas, that's one of the legacy projects he wants to be known for. He also, obviously, with his Supreme Court picks, that's another thing that leaves his legacy. I don't know if he necessarily perceives it as a legacy issue. He might, but would it define his legacy in either positive or negative terms, depending on how things happen? Um, again, amongst his support base who have been longing for this for quite a while, as I said, those are generally religious conservatives like evangelicals, religious Jews, and others. I think that would probably define his presidency in their eyes. I don't know if it would necessarily define his presidency in either a positive or negative light. Again, a lot of it depends, Scott, on what happens in the next few weeks. If we don't see a difference, or at least the, the temperature remains about the same, in Israel and the Middle East through, let's say, through the end of year and into early 2018, then that actually is probably a benefit to him, and you just sort of watch and monitor the area going forward. I guess if there's an enormous sea change and more violence and more death and more incidents that happen that will obviously negatively affect the Trump White House and negatively affect the United States, that's where it starts to come into play. But whether it will define his presidency or not, I guess in the end, ultimately, if he lasts one to two, you know, he'll last a term, but if he lasts up to two terms, it could, because then you have about eight years to, or well, seven years, let's say, to sort of gauge how it goes. If it's only for a, a couple of years and his presidency ends after one term, it may or may not. Uh, what about Trudeau's response to this? He's been criticized by staying silent. Your thoughts? <laughs> You know, for him, it's probably the best move, I would say. I mean, I obviously I don't give much advice to Justin Trudeau. I don't agree with ideologically. But as our prime minister, I think his wisest strategy right now is to not get involved. And I know the temptation is there to say something, especially because in the previous administration, my old friend boss Stephen Harper the relationship between Canada and Israel became exceedingly tight. Right. In fact, it became, uh, I've written about it and others did too, it became much closer between Canada and Israel than, than the, it be, was between Israel and the U.S. during Barack Obama's presidency. Mm. Donald Trump obviously respects the fact that Canada wants to play an important role with Israel, but he wants the U.S.-Israel relationship to be rebuilt for personal reasons, for political reasons, and I think because he simply believes in that in general. Um, but for Canada, the best move for Trudeau is to let it play out. Basically state that, look, the U.S. president and his administration have made a decision. They're moving forward this way. We're not going to get involved one way or the other. We're going to wait and see how things go. And if it makes sense at some point for Canada to do the same thing that the United States has done, we and other members, you know, other countries around the world will do the same thing, you know, as a, as a form of solidarity or something like that. But for right now, the Trudeau liberals are just going to remain silent because we're a middle power. We don't necessarily need to get involved heavily. 
Plus, there's always the phone. You know, he can always call mm. Trump. We know that the two of them speak occasionally on other things, mostly involving women's issues and stuff like that. But there are issues that the U.S. and Canada speaks about on a regular basis that, quite frankly, most people are not privy to. It wouldn't shock me if Trudeau made, you know, made a few comments to Trump about it, but nothing harsh. And I don't think there'll be an official statement or release from the liberal government in Canada because I just don't feel they feel it's necessary to get involved in an issue that doesn't directly affect them yet. Again, going back to Tillerson's uh, cool response to all of this, uh, and of course the embassy being moved, will that, will it even happen? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I think if Trump lasts long enough, it right. will. Let's put it this way. Um, I agree with Tillerson that it will take a long time to get the process rolling. You know, Donald Trump wants everything done tomorrow. But unfortunately, tomorrow is not going to happen that easily. Like, for example, he wanted the wall to, you know, the, the wall to right. be sort of in a position now with Mexico to be built, or at least the starting process to start at the end of this year. Well, I, I think we can safely say, Scott, it's nowhere near there, and God knows it will never happen. But with, it, but with the capital, uh, moving the, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and making that the capital city, I could certainly see if Trump lasts two terms, 100% yes. I'll even put money on it. It will happen. Because it's not hard for him to do that. It's much harder to build a wall with Mexico than it is to move an embassy. If he's only a one-term president... That's an interesting question, because this then becomes part of his policy platform, that, you know, I made the big move forward, I've changed the way the world has looked at this issue, and now the United States is going to recognize that Jerusalem, the holy city, is going to be the capital of this country. You know, I, Donald Trump, did that. But in one term, he might be able to, but I could see it happening closer to the end where he's nearing re-election than I can, well, say next year. But who knows? Donald Trump often surprises us. Anything is possible. Mm. Michael Tobe has been with us. Troy Media, syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk tech. Let's bring in Sid, uh, Sid Bolton, curator of the Personal Computer Museum up in uh, Brantford. Uh, is Amazon Key a good idea? You know, it's not so much. I think when people first heard about this, they thought, well, you know, it's uh, the security thing. I, I don't know if I want people coming in and out of my house. And what about Fido? No, not your phone, your dog. Um, what if they get out? What? But w- another element to this is... It's just another way of monitoring every single thing you do. Would you feel comfortable having Amazon or anybody who's delivering stuff? In and out, in and out. It's up to me. Let's bring in Sid Bolton, curator, personal computer museum up in Brantford with us now. Sid, how are you? Thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh, uh, no problem at all. I'm happy to be here. So uh, explain, an interesting one. <laughs> explain to everyone what Amazon Key is. So what Amazon Key is, it's uh, basically a, you can buy this sort of starter kit, as it's called, that provides you with a cloud camera. So this is a camera, video camera, that sends images to the cloud, which otherwise known as the Internet. And it also has an electronic lock that would go on your front door. And basically what this thing can do, it connects to your smartphone. So the idea is is that when you order something from Amazon, they will come to your door and they will knock on your door first. And if nobody answers, they will then use their phone 
to look up your address in your account, and then it will send a message to you saying, someone from Amazon is now entering your home to drop off a package. And then what will happen is, is the door will unlock just for that one occurrence only. They will then put your package inside your front door, and then they will leave, and the door will lock, and they will go away. And the camera is there to provide sort of verification. That is what they say, verification that uh, this is the person coming in and the person leaving. And it also has other benefits of, you know, they can connect it to a a doorbell system, which I actually have one of these myself right now, and they're great. I mean, they allow you to see who's at your front door and decide whether or not you want to open the door and things like that. Um, But you're right, this does give them a chance to then monitor sort of what's going on at your home from the outside anyways. But at the same time, it's still uh, somewhat of an intrusive thing because now they have control of your door. Uh, what about collecting data, collecting info? Well, that's the thing, right? They they now have this other way of doing that. And the one thing that I was sort of wondering about with this particular situation, because I'm thinking to myself, okay, I hear in the news lately of thieves that are now, you know, you have a package dropped off to your house, and then all of a sudden yeah. the package is gone, yeah. right? So we know that this is happening where thieves are actually following following delivery trucks, delivering trucks. And then as they leave stuff at your porch, they come along and grab your stuff. And then, and, and, you know, it's kind of like when you get your credit card number stolen, it it usually doesn't impact you in the end, other than it's a real pain, right? Because now you have to contact the company and say, Hey, this is stolen. Also, how do you prove it, right? Sometimes it's difficult. So Amazon is saying, hey, you know, let us put a camera there and then we can prove you know, what's going on outside your door. But um, it's just another way for them to collect information, I think. And I know they're doing it in limited trials in only certain cities and things like that. But I think, Scott, myself, I think a better solution is, you know, we've had these things around called mailboxes. Uh, I don't know if you remember what those are. And I know new, uh, new homes don't have them anymore. But um, if we're going to get packages all the time, maybe we just, instead of spending the 250 U.S. dollars, by the way, for this, uh, this kit that then allows Amazon to enter your home, instead of having that, why don't we spend $250 or less on some sort of cool box that can sit on your porch that's big enough for the average package to go in, and then and you can't take the package out unless you have access to it electronically or something. So in other words, they can drop a package off in this, this super box, I'm going to call it. That's, right. my, that's my patented name I just came up with. Yeah. And then you can't get it anything back out. It's sort of kind of a one-way thing. You push something Sort of like out. an outdoor safe. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then you can only get the package if you're the owner of that box. To like me, you, that like you said, in the old days, they called them mailboxes. Yeah, that's right. It would just be a little bit bigger. But to me, that that's a better solution and certainly less you know intrusive. Um, because I just the idea of, yeah, I understand that they supposedly knock on the door. But could you imagine if you were, say, in the bedroom or the washroom and you didn't hear the door knock and mm. you came out and all of a sudden... There's some dude standing there in your doorway, like and I the don't know. fun and the fun ensues. Name an address withheld. <laughs> well, you know, I'm thinking that this is actually going to be um, a great plot for the next Hollywood movie, right? Yeah, exactly. Is, you know, you're going to have all kinds of scenarios of yeah. things happening with people entering your home. So it's almost like the old days when the milkman would come by and put your milk in that box. Yeah, exactly. In the old houses, they actually have a, a door where you can the milkman can put milk if he wants and you open it up yeah. from the inside. 
Bizarre. Exactly. So I, I don't know. I just, you know, and I think about this delivery method. I also think about how, you know, Amazon has invested a lot of money in drones. And so these drones are not going to be able to open your front door and fly into your house, are they? I mean, this is... <laughs> Hey, you know what? I saw I saw a drone in use the other day. Um, this is pretty weird. Uh, you may have, uh, have known the huge fire in the Burlington area around Appleby and the QEW, the, the big Paletta plant, uh, went up in flames. It burned for like a day. There was um, firefighters on there the next day, still on scene, with aerial trucks pouring water over, you know, uh, from, from uh, you know, high above. And they were, I, I'm driving down the road and I'm kind of looking at this and the traffic was bumper to bumper because everybody stopped looking at this. And I, and I noticed something over the center of the factory and I thought it was a giant bird, but then I realized it was a drone. So clearly the firefighters were using this drone and obviously had a camera on it to identify where hotspots were within the walls and uh, ceiling of this complex. It was pretty cool to see. Yeah, that is a, a great use of a drone because not only is it, it's, is it safer, but it mm-hmm. has the kind of infrared technology on some drones or that can be installed on a drone that would allow them to see hotspots. And I mean, that's something that can be deployed very quickly, very easily. And uh, so, yeah, that does a great use of, of a drone, but is delivering the package to yeah. the door, is that, I mean, that's cool. Don't get me wrong. Um, I mean, I'm even still amazed that right now, Amazon has people delivering packages on a Sunday. I've ordered stuff from Amazon on a Friday or Saturday, and it's shown up to my house on Sunday. And we're just not used to that, right? I mean, in Canada, we haven't had, we've always had sort of mail delivery Monday to Friday. That's always how it's been. I know in the, in the most parts of the U.S., they have mail delivery on Saturday. Um, but we're just not used to that. And we're certainly not used to getting packages on a Saturday or a Sunday just because uh, that's just not how our system has really ever worked. And now all of a sudden, we're getting this Sunday delivery, and now we're talking about having delivery that's inside the door when you get home. I mean, I understand the reasons for doing it, and I, I do get that, but is it taking things too far? And for me, I, I wouldn't invest in that. And then the other thing is, is that what about the people that already have a system, like whether it's uh, Ring.com or I have the Vivint system, for example, myself as my, part of my home security system. So what about me? Do I have to now reinvest, even though I've spent invested a whole bunch of money in this system that I have now that works just fine, by the way, already connects to my smartphone, gives me that ability to, oh, I can open my door from my cell phone. I can look outside my front door from my cell phone. Um, what do I do? Do I have to then install hmm. this Amazon-specific product um, and then what happens to the stuff that I've already invested in? Is that no longer any good? Do I have to get this system on top of that? I'm not really interested in that. And Amazon has recently proven that they're not playing nice with others. Mm. And I'm referring to Google right now. Yeah. Um, so if they're not playing well with others in the sandbox, what does that mean for consumers? Are we going to yeah. you know, end up paying more for stuff because if we don't buy into their ecosystem and, you know, What about people getting locked out of their house and something going wrong? And I was like, no, I can't get in. Well, we also, much like the mailboxes, they have these things called keys. And I don't know if you remember those. (laughs) (laughs) Those have kind of gone the way of the Dobird. But um, you know what? It's always good to have uh, a key on all of these systems. And I know it sounds funny, but it's happened to me. I have, I have, you know, I've had electronic locks 
for a long time myself. I was an early adopter to this kind of stuff because I am a tech guy. But yet I do appreciate and understand the value of the older way of doing things. And so, um, you know what, things like uh, power runs out, batteries run out, like all these locks yeah. are great. But unless they're hardwired into your house and, you you know, what happens if your power is out for some reason? Like yeah. this is always the concern. It's, it's happened to me a few times with my garage door. Like I often enter my place through the garage door. What do you do when the power goes out and you can't open that door anymore? Right. So we have we always have this reliance on things. You know, you could always just turn the handle and lift it up there. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, I know. It's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, talk a little bit about, um, y- you talked about the ring systems and, and security and such. Uh, at the end of the day, this is going to, it would seem, make security companies obsolete because, you know, whether you've got that voice-activated thing that says, get out of my house, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, now you're that person. You can see who's coming and going. You can, you, you're that person. So if you outfit your house in this, it's, it's the same thing, is it not? Well, the the differences, I guess, are the main reason there's still a need for uh, monitoring companies in terms of uh, your security system. So if, for example, uh, you've set your alarm and you've left the house uh, and someone you know breaks the glass or enters through a door that doesn't have any of these cameras on it, it just has a sensor on it, right. then, of course, you're still going to want you know some way for somebody to be alerted. But you're right, those... Those, uh, and I used to have one of those uh, those things that would you know try it was sort of, it was called the two way system and I can't remember exactly the yeah. specific name but it would have a thing where if the alarm in your house went off by mistake yeah. someone would come on yeah. the the thing and say hey you know yeah. what's your password right. and all this kind of stuff yeah we well we, again we have these things called phones now and uh, mm-hmm. you just pick them up and someone calls you and it's also a two way communication yeah. device. Um, but I mean, I understand the reason for those at, at one point in time, but the, um, the interesting thing for me, one of the reasons why I actually changed to a more advanced system was that my monitoring system used a traditional landline. Right. And when I decided to get rid of my landline, right. uh, then all of a sudden I now, now had no way for my security system to call for help. Right. And so these more modern security systems use the internet right. via either your internet connection or, and again, internet connection not always 100% reliable. So in my case, mine also has its own cellular network, which is good because, of course, you know, if you remember watching these old movies where people would break into homes or, you know, it's kind of funny. The premise for a lot of films uh, is completely gone now if you look at the technology mm. we have because yeah. it's not you real. Can't have, <laughs> right. You can't. You can't that can't happen. You can't have this mastermind thief come in and cut the wires that, yeah, you know, yeah. cuts the house off from communicating with the police and the monitoring system. Yeah. Because now uh, these systems call for help wirelessly without, you know, there's no way to really easily block that communication. So, um, yeah, it, it, I don't think it gets rid of the security companies. I think like a lot of businesses that have had to evolve, it just makes the security companies evolve their business right. a little bit. Yeah, they by. just they just jump on board. Let me yeah. ask you this, what about how much how much data would these systems collect? Like if you don't have or if you're in a rural area that doesn't have uh, internet cable hookup or any of that sort of thing and you've got to do it 
off of uh, off of a data plan or, or, or somehow, you know, off a satellite or whatever. Do these systems continually draw on that data or would they just draw when they're being used, i.e. when you check something, when you... You know, if there's a motion detector or a doorbell goes off, or would, yeah, they, so, would, would they continually draw on your data plan? So what the, if you just have a regular sort of internet connection set up, what they do is they record most of them, and I'm just going to generalize here, but most of them will use a 30-second clip whenever there's motion detected. So what they would do is they would record that clip and they would upload it to the server, which would allow you to then, view uh, after the fact. Um, and then they also record events. So for example, when the door is opened uh, or when the, the keypad has been activated and, and entry has been made, there's an event listed. Those things don't take up a lot of, of information or data. But when you're talking about video clips... Yeah, do. as soon as so, you get into video, it's different. Right? Yeah, it's, it's much bigger, you know, but at least it's not continually recording, but it does record every time there's an event and you can set the sensitivity sometimes for example mine will record an event when things change from uh you know from dusk to you know like just set off the sensor yeah yeah like if the if the sun's coming down or going up or whatever there's enough of a change in the video that it says oh there's some sort of a movement or if you can see a car going by sometimes if they're too sensitive right then they'll they'll misidentify a car as being but if you don't have an internet connection or uh, enough of a a a phone line there to support this uh, on its own and you've got to use data you know just much like you're watching netflix uh, to, to operate these things, they won't. The, the, it's not like the tap, they've turned the tap on and it just runs all month. No, and I mean, what it would do, like in the case of this uh, this Amazon Key system, is if you didn't have that extra data, what it would do is it would simply send you events. So it would send a simple message to your phone, much like a text right. message saying someone has entered your house, and then the device that's in your house would continue to record that information right. in a limited fashion. Right. So when you got home, you'd be able to go to the keypad and look and say, right. okay, this is what happened. Yeah. Uh, but it's not like the, the cloud ones usually have longer retention. And you can also, this is another upsell for, say, a security company, is if you want longer retention on your clips, so right. you can go back a month to see who came in your house, right. you pay more for that. Yeah. If you want just the last couple of days, it's cheaper. It's usually what the standard package includes. Because like anything, right, if they have to store your information somewhere on the cloud, it's going to cost money. And these are the systems that can run your thermostat and everything, right? Absolutely, yeah. These these connected systems now, they run thermostats. I've actually just added integration with... Um, the Google Voice, so I can actually um, turn up example, the heat, turn yeah, down I the can, heat, I, or I can ask it what the current temperature is without going to the thermostat. Because yeah. if I feel cold, is it me or is it the house? Because you know? <laughs> sometimes you don't know, right? <laughs> like if I'm because like that day, key, it's an awful long walk down to the end of the hallway to read the thermostat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sid Bolton, well exactly. <laughs> Sid Bolton has been with us, curator, personal computer museum up in Brantford. Sid, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. No problem. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.